Well, thank you, worship team. And thank you so much, wherever you are. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the risen Savior. You uh, maybe have your coffee and your pastry there. I uh, trust you'll also have a Bible open, maybe a Bible app, and turn with me to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. Last week we looked at the first six verses of Isaiah 53, and today we look at the last six. You know, we could write maybe a long list of the disappointments of this season, the things that we are missing, but somewhere high on that list is I think we're missing cheering, celebrating, publicly praising one another. The roar of a crowd after a dunk or a three-pointer to win the game or a walk-off home run. The ovation you might hear at the end of your child's year-end choir concert or some performance in the park or an amphitheater. You might be missing the applause that you hear as a student walks across the stage and receives that hard-earned diploma. It could be you've even had to miss out on the noisy, crowded room full of friends and relatives at a birthday party to celebrate one more year for someone really important to you. Instead, we're supposed to sing a stanza of happy birthday, standing by ourselves, looking in the mirror, washing our hands, right? You see, we were made to celebrate. We're, we were made to publicly praise one another. And it's kind of depressing that we can't, but is it possible that there's a silver lining to the fact that we can't do that for this limited season? Could it be that because all the the other praise of one another is stilled, that we can bring into sharper focus the most important thing to celebrate? And I think that's what Easter, Resurrection Day, is all about. So we want to take full advantage of celebrating what is truly the most important victory that Jesus Christ accomplished. And we could put it in these terms. Jesus Christ is alive, and he has conquered sin and death. Jesus Christ is alive. He has conquered sin and death. I just invite you, if you're sitting there alone, you're sitting there with your family, could you say that twice with me? Jesus Christ is alive. He has conquered sin and death. One more time. Jesus Christ is alive and he has conquered sin and death. That is what we are gathered here to do uh, today. As we're looking at Isaiah 53, I want to draw your attention briefly to one verse, a couple of verses before this chapter begins. It really serves to introduce what Isaiah 53 is about. Look, my servant, God is speaking of Jesus, Look, my servant Jesus will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. It's celebrating the success of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and when he arose. Isaiah revealed, God revealed this to Isaiah 700 years before Christ, and how remarkable is that? Last week in the first six verses, we looked at uh, essentially this. Why did Christ have to die? 
And we came to realize he had to die because he was bearing the punishment for our sins. But I need to say this. Everything we talked about last week of Jesus paying for our sins is not true unless Jesus arose that Sunday morning. In fact, Paul would write later on in 1 Corinthians 15 of the New Testament, it's really called the resurrection chapter, rightly. He would write, if Christ has not been risen, we're still in our sins. If Christ has not been risen, we are of all men to be pitied. This is foolishness. If Christ did not rise, but he did. And we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all record for us in detail, like four independent witnesses called to testify at a trial, the details of the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And normally on an Easter Sunday morning, we often look at one of those passages, but we're, we're looking at Isaiah, where 700 years before, he called it, he prophesied of the resurrection and celebrated Christ's Success. So let's pick it up in verse 7. Verses 7 through 9 review and focus on the death and the burial of Jesus prophetically. Verse 7 He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is referring to the fact that Christ, during the injustice since his arrest, did not protest, did not defend himself. And the reason is that Jesus volunteered for this. Jesus chose to do this. That's why he didn't resist. That's why he was silent like a sheep about to be slaughtered. That's, that's why he didn't object when they arrested him. Now, on the human level, this was a travesty of justice starting with the soldiers who arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, they would then escort him to some six locations in the coming hours. There were two so-called hearings before the former and then the present Jewish high priest. Hearings which, by Jewish law itself, were illegal. And then in the morning, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, would semi-officially convene and tried him, but again, violating their own legalities in that Jesus had no one there to defend him. And because the Jews could not execute anyone apart from Roman authority and permission, they sent him off to Pilate, the local Roman governor, who passed him off to King Herod, who sent him back to Pilate, who eventually acquiesced to the pressure of the, of the Jewish leadership and, 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 and the crowds yelling, crucify him, and sent him to the cross. And through this all, Jesus did not protest, defend, or fight the accusations. Why? Jesus explained it himself preemptively in John 10. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, Jesus says, to lay it down, authority to take it down, take it up again. 
the cross, the resurrection. This command I received from my father. So it wasn't only Isaiah who called it, but Jesus himself calls it. And Jesus told his disciples who really didn't understand during the the years, the really just the months before the crucifixion, he made reference three, four, maybe five times before that he was going to die and on the third day rise again. He told them that and it went right over their heads. But the reason he didn't object, verse 7, is because this was all planned and the Father's plan was going as designed. I remember an old gospel song with these words. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. So we need to know that he suffered willingly. So as we celebrate, we know that he chose to do this. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants, or it could be generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That's his death. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. The oppression and judgment refers to the illegality and the injustice of this whole process that was clearly planned. And the next line says, who can speak of his uh, descendants or generation? I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to put on the screen another way that some of your Bibles would, would render this. Because the point seems to be that nobody really caught on what was really happening. As for his generation, referring to his peers, the Jews... They, who considered, that is, who noticed that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, the idea is they didn't really know, nor did they care what was going on. They, it was no big deal to them that they were witnessing yet another rather gruesome routine execution. And so it was three instead of two people. They didn't understand that for one of these men that was dying, it was actually the centerpiece of all human history. Because what he was doing was dying for the transgression of the people, everybody in the world, all at one time. He was punished for their transgressions. And so if we understand this passage correctly, we we essentially see a buildup of suspense towards the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. All over Jerusalem, it was Passover, festival season. Historians estimate there were several hundred thousand people who would converge on, on Jerusalem during this special time, and they were coming, many of them very sincerely coming, Jews coming from all over the kingdom of, uh, to, to celebrate a, a past deliverance. When God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt... They were supposed to celebrate that. What they didn't realize, no one really considered, nobody understood. They were nonchalant. They were unsuspecting that a more important deliverance was taking place. That Christ was the Passover lamb who was being slain for the sins of the world. Their sins were being punished. It seemed to his enemies who had rigged the trials and hired the false Uh, witnesses. It seemed they were winning. It seemed that Jesus was losing, but he was actually accomplishing exactly what the plan of the Father designed. 
always like in movies, stories, that there is this tension because the, there's this time where the antagonist thinks that he or she is winning and it looks like the main character who you've grown to know and love is, is, somehow, is somehow losing. But you know, because you know the person, you know that somehow in this plot there is something else going on and eventually the right person will succeed. It's like Isaiah is, is filling in these details. The, the, um, the black preacher S.M. Lockridge from some generations ago preached a famous sermon that you will still hear a phrase repeated over and over at this season every year. When he described how it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. This is Friday. Friday was the day of death. Friday was the day of these unjust trials, the day of the beatings. On Friday, they then hoisted him upon the cross and crucified him. And when he was died, died he was taken down and, and he was embalmed and he was wrapped in linen and he was placed lifeless into the, into the tomb. And the guards were sitting there appointed by the skittish authorities. That was Friday. But Sundays are coming, isn't it? Isaiah's prophecy even alludes here in the next verse 9, alludes 700 years earlier to a specific detail about his Christ's burial. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, what do you suppose they did with the bodies of executed criminals in the first century A.D.? We actually, there is a document from the early centuries A.D., written by a Roman judge named Ulpian, who wrote that they had burial pits where they would throw the bodies of the executed. Unless, there was an exception, unless there was a relative or a friend who would request the body and then that request was approved by the local Roman authorities. That exception to the rule had actually been the wishes of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, who was ruling at the time of Christ. So how was Jesus buried? What does the verse say? He was assigned a grave for the wicked, and the second line begins with a little word, a little one-letter conjunction in the Hebrew, which could be and or but. I think the idea is, but instead, something else happened. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but... Instead, it was with the rich in his death. Why? Because he experienced the exception. Here's Matthew chapter 27. Here's what happened. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock, no doubt for himself. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. God clearly had even the burial details planned. Why? So he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Why? Second half of verse 9 says... Either though, or I would uh, render this as some 
Bibles say, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So God made sure that the innocent body of his son was not dumped in some pit awaiting resurrection day. So instead, God directed this godly man, Joseph, a man wealthy enough to, in a garden setting, purchase a rock out of which he's hewn his own tomb so that he can make a, a, a room big enough so that the disciples on Easter Sunday morning can walk in with the door open and see the linen wrappings laying on the side and can be witnesses to the resurrection. The body was not there. It was gone, as were the, the guards who had been scared away but stayed long enough to know that the body was gone and they didn't see anybody else take it. It was Friday. But all was in place for Sunday. He died and he was buried, verses 7 through 9. Now verses 10 through 12 tell us about the resurrection and the victory of Jesus. In verses 10 through 12, in conclusion of this amazing chapter, link together the truths of why Jesus died with how he was raised. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, the Father's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life, God makes Christ's life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you see the, the joy in the second half of the verse? Now, these verses could be a little bit puzzling as we seek to understand them 2,700 years later, but it's worth, the, it's worth the effort to unravel it. And we see in this single verse how the cross and the resurrection are linked together in one solitary accomplishment. We see how though they are days apart... There is one sweeping success story unfolded. And that achievement is your salvation. That achievement is your eternal life. It required that God the Father crushed Christ. Description of God the Father on the cross punishing our sins. And making him, it says, a guilt offering. A guilt offering. Every Jew could visualize a guilt offering. How many times had they seen a lamb laid upon the altar, restrained, and then that moment of death where the priest kills it? Not pretty. You, you couldn't even put that on film today unless you had a disclaimer that somehow animals were not harmed in the making of it. But that's how serious our sin is. God had to punish Jesus for the reality of our guilt. And we all feel guilt. We all know something about the dark places of our heart. And while our society may try to minimize sin or not even use the word rename it, redefine ethical and moral standards of God's word by calling them normal or even good, We know it's not. And we carry the shame, we carry the guilt, we carry the regrets, choices we have made, how they have hurt us, choices we have made, how they hurt others. And we experience 
the ugliness of sin and its consequences. Kind of sorry, have to bring that up, but really not. Because until we understand the dreadfulness of sin, we will not appreciate the victory of the cross with the empty tomb. John Henry Jowett wrote, When I stand at the cross, I am permitted in my measure to see sin through the eyes of God. So as we look personally at the cross and acknowledge our sin, now we understand how serious it is because my sin required God to crush his son. So our sin is exposed in its awfulness on Friday. But God's love is displayed in its vastness on Sunday. God's plan for your salvation, you could say, was accomplished on the cross, but never validated until the tomb was empty. And that's the second half of the verse. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will see his offspring. You cannot see if you're dead. But Jesus will see his offspring. Offspring refers to descendants, and the spiritual descendants of Jesus are those who believe in him. So John 1.12 says, But as many as received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And so you enter his family. You become his child. You are one of these, in verse 10, one of these offspring that Christ sees, the Father sees. And so, so right now, 2,700 years later from Isaiah, 2,000 years later from the cross and the resurrection, in a time of disease and death, we are actually celebrating life and confidence all around the globe. The, 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 the pandemic of sin has been overcome by the cure of the cross and the empty tomb. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. This is the resurrection. So Jesus' life humanly stopped with death on Friday, just like every other death, but unlike any other death on Sunday morning. His days continued. His days were prolonged. And because they were prolonged, that is why we have the gospel. That is why gospel means good news. In Romans chapter 1, the gospel or good news, he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's like Isaiah 53, right? Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, but who through the the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the good news. Jesus' death is not good news at all, unless he was raised from the dead. So the resurrection is the total game changer. It's like God totally ignored the rules of life and death. And only God can do that because he is the creator of life. Only the giver of life can reverse Death. So sorry to say the many dollars spent by some wealthy people on cryogenic freezing 
is wasted. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to man to die once, and after that, judgment. Ever since Adam and Eve, when God issued that warning, Genesis 2.17, that on the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Ever since then, there has been judgment of death because of sin. And it has continued unrelenting, except here. Except on Sunday morning, death was arrested, we sang. Death was reversed. Death was defeated. It changes everything. This is why it's good news. And the final line of verse 10 says, the will of the Lord will prosper. That means succeed. So God's entire plan by which he loved the world and could deal with the sin only through Christ succeeds because he prolonged his days, because of the empty tomb. Prosperity has been affected the last month, right? And uh, profitable work for many has ceased. Prosperous gain has stopped or receded. Maybe we've seen even some of the positives of that because suddenly family and friends may mean more to us than more money. And instead of buying more Caring so much what we own or what we drive, uh, health and safety are more important. And could it be that God is using this special season of time, this, this bubble of time, and has placed Easter, our celebration of the resurrection, right in the middle of it so we might value that which is most valuable, that while this kind of prosperity is threatened, we understand our spiritual riches in Christ, that instead of being enthralled and obsessed with, with the financial gain and the pursuit of that, instead of being so focused on winning and prospering, we have a window of time to value that which is most valuable. Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. In order to bring you into relationship with him, that you can know for sure where you will be one moment after you die. Can you imagine anything more valuable than conquering the fear of death for you? And that's what he accomplished. And so verse 11 tells us how indeed, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished that after suffering for our sin, Jesus was satisfied that he had completed the job. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify or make righteous many, and he will bear their, injust, in, in, their iniquities. Um, in the beginning of the verse there, you may have the phrase a little bit different. Uh, in the Hebrew text, it's just that simple. He will see and be satisfied. And, and uh, knowing that it has to refer to something important, uh, some have said, as mine, my translation says, he will see the light of life referring to the resurrection. Others say he will see his work or labor, referring to the cross. Uh, I, I prefer to leave it simple because it's both. He will see that what he was pursuing, that what he was seeking to achieve has been achieved. And he was satisfied 
that he had completed the job. And so by his knowledge, God says, my righteous servant, the reference to Jesus in Isaiah 53 and and actually previous chapters, my righteous servant Jesus will accomplish the justification of many. So to justify means to make or declare someone righteous. And that's exactly what happens to your account in heaven when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You are declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because he is righteous and he paid the penalty for your sin. And Jesus was satisfied that he had succeeded at doing exactly that. So what do you do when you've accomplished a great task, maybe at your job? What do you do when uh, you get to the end of your child's stellar musical performance? What do you do when the final score is in your favor because of a walk-off home run? What do you do when you walk across the stage and receive that diploma? You celebrate, right? You cheer, you applaud. You're so thrilled at what was accomplished. And that's where this chapter has taken us. That's where, that's where Friday becomes Sunday and we can enjoy the spiritual fruits of what Christ has done for us. Therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the many and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a description culturally of what a conquering general did when he returned to the capital city and he would lead a parade. And part of that parade would be soldiers carrying the spoils of war. The loot they had gathered in their victory. And depending on the generosity of the general, that loot would be distributed to the cheering crowds. That's what's taking place in verse 12. I will give him a portion among the, you may have the word many or great. It's actually the same word many as you find at the end of the verse. And it refers to the multitude of people who will benefit by what Christ did. And in the 2,000 years since Christ, there have been millions of people who have heard about the death and resurrection of Christ who have placed their faith in Christ alone and have received as a free gift distributed by Jesus, the free gift of eternal life. That's you if you have placed your faith in him. That's what Jesus won for you. He poured out his life into death for you to get that gift. He was numbered among the transgressors. Think about that. Considered a criminal. He was numbered among the transgressors for you, so you could have the gift of eternal life. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15. Since the children, referring to us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He started all this. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Has that ever described you? The fear of death? Christ came to address that fear of death. And here in this season where so many people are are fearing disease and death, we discover the solution. We discover that Jesus has succeeded. Look at the verse again. He took on human form. That's his humanity. 
So that by his death, he could only die because he was human. But by his death, he could break the power of him who holds the power of death. That could only happen because he's God. The power of death held by Satan and free all who have all their lives been held in slavery by this fear. And so if that's you, you've got to realize that sin is the reason you've had that fear. You have to realize that the Satan, who is real, he wants you to fear death. But as we have studied, the solution is in Christ. 1 John 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so just as this pandemic has surrounded the globe, so also the benefits of Christ's death on the cross covers everybody around the globe. Your sin is already paid. Your sin is already paid by Christ. You can add nothing to it. Many people, through various means, personal or religious, attempt to pay off their sin, balance it out somehow, impress God somehow. You cannot add to what Christ has done and accomplished. This has been an economic uh, struggle for so many this season. Uh, It's possible you're facing bills, rent payments, mortgages that uh, you're struggling to to pay. Uh, It's been an interesting season of generosity as uh, various uh, people have, or companies have uh, postponed payments or uh, programs of loan forgiveness or delay. uh, I got a letter this week from our uh, auto insurance company saying they're going to refund me 15% of my premiums because claims are down with less travel. Let's say that you have a utility bill coming up and it's $300. You don't have the money, but you've got a a relative who loves you, and and that relative pays the $300 for you. Are you going to go and pay the bill also? Of course not. Because the bill is paid. Christ has paid the bill. Christ has paid the penalty 100% for your sin and mine. We can't add anything to that. And we know the bill is paid because of what we've seen here. That there is the receipt of the resurrection available for all of us to see that on resurrection morning, our bill paid for on Friday was stamped, paid in full. Does, does Christ's sin, you might ask, even cover sins that you'll still sin after you put your faith in Christ? I think the last line is addressing that. Where it says, and made or makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a, it's a Hebrew term that could be taken, a form that can be either a present tense past or future, and uh, I'm convinced it's future. He makes intercession. Uh, Hebrews 7.25 says that he, Christ, ever lives to make intercession for us. So once you place your faith in Christ, any following sin is already covered. Because Jesus is there saying, I got that, I paid for that, I paid for that, and I paid for that. He ever lives to make intercession intercession 
for us. And so salvation is a free gift. I trust that uh, you have come to understand what has been done for you by Christ when he died on the cross, paying for your sins, and rose again. And the question facing you is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Romans 6 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So we need to understand the seriousness of our sin. The penalty would be eternal judgment. But then what does it say? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The free gift. He paid for it. That's why it's free. So what do we do? Reviewing a verse we looked at a little more carefully last week. And I'd encourage you, if you have questions, you might want to review what we looked at in the first verses of of, uh, Isaiah 53 last week, but look for a key phrase of what you must do in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, that means undeserved, you have been saved, that means released from the penalty of your sin, through faith. Through faith. Just so we're clear, this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. No one's going to be in heaven saying, I got here because I deserve to be here. In heaven, all the glory will go to Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid for our sins and rose again. And so what do we do? We can only have this free gift if you take it as a gift. Were you saying, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand I must, that, that Jesus paid for my sins. And so by faith, I am putting my trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Not myself, not my works, not my religion, not my background, not my future promises. I'm putting my trust in Christ alone, and we will have eternal life. Some of you know that uh, it was this time last year that my uh, mom and my dad both passed away in Kansas, uh, just nine days apart, actually. In fact, the day before Easter last year, uh, we had the service for my dad who passed away first. And so on Easter Sunday morning last week, I went to the graveside and uh, snapped this picture. About two weeks later, we returned and laid my mom next to my dad. It was a sad time, indeed. We miss them a lot. But we do not grieve like so much of the world is grieving today. You know why? Because in a real sense, we didn't say goodbye. We said, we will see you later. Because you see, my mom and my dad had both placed their faith in Christ. I've placed my faith in Christ And so the words at the end of the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 are the assurance we need. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, the way we've broken it. But... In light of the resurrection, the entire chapter has taught us. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what impact does that have on our life? 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. The events of these days are shaking many people. How long will it last? How will it be different? How will I get through this? Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. So what should we be focused on instead? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So refocus your life on this question. If I have received the free gift of eternal life, what's to be the new direction of my life? And is there something that has been our focus in the last months and years that maybe God will clarify, adjust, so that we would be refocused on that which is the most important success ever, the centrality of Christ and what he has done for us. So while we wish we could celebrate and publicly recognize one another at this time, maybe we have this pause to affirm, cheer, applaud, and celebrate the most important thing of all, that which Christ accomplished for us successfully. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by this understanding of ourselves that we are the cause of the cross. We come before you recognizing that in ourselves we deserve your judgment, but we come so filled with gratitude that in your love you sent Christ to take our place. And having poured out your wrath, O Father, upon your Son, Jesus, you have offered, because the payment was made, you've offered as a free gift eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray for any who hear these words that uh, there would be clarity, there would be understanding, that there is nothing we can do to add to what you have done, and that there would be many who would place their faith in Christ alone. We rejoice, we celebrate the power of the resurrection to raise Jesus and to give us eternal life. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.